This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 3 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's weekly awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I'm very happy to be back in L.A. and joined by our film editor here at The Reporter, Greg Kilday. Greg, thanks for doing this. Good to see you, Scott. You are, you, are you recovered from Toronto? <laughs> well, you, you were working harder than anyone, Greg, and I'm very uh, appreciative of you making time to do this. Uh, and really, I, I guess I'm curious what your overall takeaway of the festival was and also the fact that Room, which was not a movie that was high on most people's radar going into the festival, or at least going into Telluride the week before, that has now emerged as the People's Choice Award winner, which is a prize that's predicted five previous Best Picture Oscars. Yeah, no, the the win at the end of the festival by Room, uh, I think, was a surprise. And while the movie was already kind of gathering buzz, uh, it certainly escalated, I think, with that win. Still seems to be a bit of a controversial movie. I mean, I, I know among the the Oscar chatterers out there. There's a bit of a divide between some some of the women who are championing the movie and some of the men who want to be let out of rooms as soon as possible. <laughs> right. Well, I think the one thing that everyone uh, can agree on is that Brie Larson is terrific, and so is this kid. He's eight years old, Jake Tremblay, who's her co-star for, and it's the two of them for most of the movie. It is worth noting that it won that prize because uh, it's it's. It's been predictive in the past. Whether it will be this year remains to be seen. Another thing that has kind of shaken up the race a little bit in this past week was that Paramount, which came into the festival in Toronto with no stake in this awards race, comes out of it with one acquisition there and another surprise entry uh, for later in the year. Can you talk about how this came together? Yeah, I mean, it's turning out to be a very fluid year, and just when you think you have a take on it, something new enters the picture. Uh, up in Toronto, Paramount acquired uh, the new film by Charlie Kaufman, Anomalisa. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, it's a typical Charlie Kaufman movie. It's about a lonely guy who <laughs> checks into a hotel in Cincinnati and, and meets up with an even lonelier woman. Uh, but the twist on it is it's done entirely through stop-motion animation mm. that's been directed by a fellow named Duke Johnson. And it's a kind of a adult approach to animation. You know, we probably haven't seen since Ralph Bakshi did Fritz the Cat back wow. in the early in the early seventies. It's going to be interesting to watch because, on the one hand, you can approach it as a Charlie Kaufman movie. On the other hand, I'm not sure what the animation branch is going to make of it. Yeah, it's intentionally kind of very stylized stop motion animation as opposed to. The much more complex stop motion in a movie like Shaun the Sheep. Yes. So, you know, it's an open question whether it gets an animation nomination or not. And I guess their hope would also be uh, original screenplay and perhaps in a perfect world, best picture. But that's that's going to be, it seems like their bigger play there would be this this surprise entry later in the year, which is the big short we just found out about today. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, what did you make of it? Did you see this one coming at all? I mean, the reason that I thought, we, we all knew this movie was on the horizon for them, but it originally the plan was to put it out early next year, and I thought they would probably stick with that based primarily on the fact that they had a, a rough experience with a late release last year with Selma uh, through no real fault of their own, but just the, the calendar ran out on them, and I didn't think they'd want to uh, 
risk that again, but here we are with another Paramount movie that's going to be unveiled at AFI Fest. This one even later than the last one, although its release date is earlier than Selma's was. And it will be interesting to see what kind of a movie we're dealing with because presumably just to get that slot, you have to be a certain caliber of a movie. And yet Adam McKay, the director, is not someone we associate with awards-type movies. No, I mean, I mean, the big shot is based on one of Michael Lewis's book yeah. about the housing bubble and the hedge fund guys who came forward and realized there was a problem and figured out a way to, yes. to bet against the market. Yes. Uh, it definitely has an A-list Oscar cast mm-hmm. in, in Brad Pitt and Christian Bale and Ryan Gosling. So that alone will get it attention. Um, and you know, Greg, I just have to say, the rumor is that Steve Carell is actually going to be the one guy who gets pushed for lead and everybody else goes supporting. I'm, obviously, it's early days. We'll see if they stick with that. But it 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 would be interesting to see if Adam McKay can do what Carell himself did last year, which is sort of refashion himself as a as a guy who's viable in dramas as well. Yeah. Well, you know, all we've seen so far is the trailer yeah. uh, has a little bit of the flavor of Wolf of Wall Street uh, in that it looks really energetic. Yeah. Um, so again, you can just kind of. Uh, cross your fingers and see how this movie plays totally and uh speaking of of wall street i am uh, off to new york on thursday uh trying to beat the russia beat the pope to town um before the new york film festival opens on uh saturday delayed a day because of the pope um and they are going to open with the world premiere of the walk which has been screening uh quietly around town here a little bit but this is going to be a uh, a big night for robert zemeckis who's returning to uh, sort of a, a, a drama as opposed to his last thing was Flight, which was at New York Film Festival. He's had a few other uh, prior to that um, sort of tech adventures. But, you know, this is the guy that made Forrest Gump. We know he's he's very capable of making an Oscar-friendly movie. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether The Walk is that. Uh, and then, obviously, the other thing New York Film Festival is really great for is catching up on docs and foreign language movies, which they program a lot of. Uh, but my question for you is whether your sense is like mine that while there have been a lot of very good movies at the Fall Film Fest this year, there haven't really been uh, one or two great ones that people can actually really confidently see winning. Uh, and that as a result of this, it seems like some of the earlier movies that people really liked but sort of discounted because they were early movies might actually have more of a chance than we were giving them. Uh, it's possible. I mean, it's always a challenge for the distributors. Uh, this year, there is so much coming up. And in fact, the field is kind of very evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. And you've got new players like A24 with The Room, mm-hmm. uh, Bleecker Street. Uh, they're all going to be competing for attention for the new movies. So then the question is, can the folks who had movies out earlier in the year, over the summer, uh, can they also... Uh, get attention for some of those films. True, and you know the ones that I I have in mind when I say that you think about a Love and Mercy, which is the the Brian Wilson biopic, which that's music of the era of a lot of these voters. Uh, and Paul Dano, a lot of attention around his performance, which it so- sounds like it's going supporting, even though he's also supporting in youth and some others. Uh, people really like that performance. I'll see you in my dreams and Grandma, two senior women led. Uh, Uh, movies that came out earlier in the year, maybe something there. But the one that uh, we're going to spend most of this podcast, most of the rest of this podcast talking about is the end of the tour because its star, or one of its stars, is Jason Segel, a guy who we've all primarily thought of as a comic actor, comedy actor, ever since he was on TV as a kid in Freaks and Geeks. And yet, as David Foster Wallace in this movie about a four-day interview that he gave to Rolling Stone... Jason Siegel makes you think about him in a totally different light, wouldn't you say? I mean, mean, it's definitely a a change of pace performance for him. And, I mean, one that I'm sure on some level he took on to show the industry uh, deeper colors. And, you know, I mean, there is a whole tradition of comedians both wanting to do drama and when they get the chance doing drama fairly effectively. Totally. And, and, you know, as as you'll hear us discuss uh, momentarily, uh, one of his good friends is Jonah Hill, who is now, at, it would be hard to believe this, a decade ago when he was kind of making his name in Superbad, but Jonah Hill is now a two-time Oscar-nominated actor for at least, you would say, dram- dramatic as opposed to straight-out comedic roles. And, and so perhaps Jason Siegel will follow in his footsteps. He's being campaigned in the supporting actor category, which is always more fluid than uh, the lead and so we'll see, but uh, we hope you'll stick around, uh, listeners, and join us for the next 
uh, chunk of the podcast with Jason Siegel. Jason, first of all, thank you so much for coming and doing this. Really excited to have you, and and particularly because um, this movie, The End of the Tour, is, I don't want to say a revelation because you've always been great in what you've done up to this point, which has primarily Thanks. been comedy, but this is like a totally different thing for you, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it really is. Um, but I think it's sort of reflective of getting older. You know what I mean? I, I think that, especially when you um, write your own material like I did, um, it should be indicative of where you are at a certain point in your life. And um, I think, you know, when I hit my mid-30s, I was just thinking about different things. And when the script came came along, it just it was right on point with where I was, you know, emotionally and all that kind of thing. Now you, as as we just just referred to, you know, you've kind of always been since you've been in, in movies, and even I guess originally with Freaks and Geeks on TV, you, people have associated you with comedy. Sure. Um, but when you first got into acting, which I've I've heard a little bit about, it was not with some you know. Richard Pryor monologue or or uh, somebody you know a comedic guy. It was actually very different, yeah. wasn't it? It was um, it was the Zoo Story by Edward Albee, uh, which I put on junior year of high school for no other reason but that um, there was like a I, I want to say half hour monologue in it, and I wanted to see if I could memorize it. That was a really interesting like challenge for me, and we put the play on and and it went well and in a real kind of. L.A. kismet kind of thing. There was a woman who was checking out the school who happened to be president of casting at Paramount at the time and saw me, and a week later, my parents sat me down and said, if you want to try acting, there are people who seem supportive of that. Unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, really crazy. Was this part of an acting class or just a self-starting thing, I want to do this monologue? Um, I was was in an acting class for fun um, at the school, but it really was self-starting. I've always kind of tried to do things that were interesting to me. I try to act on those impulses. Yeah. You know? Um, I guess that's part of why I've ended up doing so many different things yeah. is I think most times you think like, oh, maybe I'll write a Muppet movie someday. <laughs> Your brain then dismisses that and is like, come on, brain, focus. <laughs> but, but I I tend to follow that road, I guess. And a children's book and yeah. children's books and all kinds of things. It's amazing. Yeah, it's fun. You only, you got so much time, you know. Yeah. Um, so from that original monologue comes that casting director, which leads to how quickly Freaks and Geeks? I did a movie first. I did a couple of teen movies, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which were like really big at the time, right. like this teen movie right. thing. I guess they're always big. But then I did a movie called SLC Punk, okay. um, which was my first experience with real acting in yeah. front of the camera. It was like an indie drama about punk music in the 80s, set in Salt Lake City. And then... It was my first pilot season, which I had I had no experience with pilot season. And all these scripts are arriving, <laughs> and this one crossed my desk that said, um, "I say desk. I don't think it's at 18 years old. You really have like a, a work desk. Right. They're like cross my, my couch. Lap. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, totally over a giant bowl of cereal. <laughs> right. um, but anyway, uh, it was called Freaks and Geeks, right. and I almost immediately kind of dismissed it because you're getting all these other pilot scripts with more legitimate names." Um, and Freaks and Geeks sounded like uh, like a Nickelodeon right, kid show or right. something. So I thought, no, and I put it aside. And then they kept asking me, have you read Freaks and Geeks? And uh, I said, no, I didn't read that. And so they said, no, you should read it. This one's special. And I read it, and I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the, um, with the pilot script. So I went in for the audition, and it was an improv audition. And I had never done anything like that before. No improv in school or anything? No, not really. You do, like, improv games, but yeah. it's just not the same yeah. thing. Yeah. And it was Judd, um, Paul Feig, and Jake Kasdan who directed the pilot. And they basically – we did the scenes as written. And then um, I can't remember if there was a reader or if it was Judd himself, but um, you just kind of started this improv. And I guess I had the naivety of youth if I look back. Like, I didn't feel scared. I just kind of did it. Mm-hmm. Um, now I look back and think I should have been terrified, but um, it ended up working out. Now, going into that, having, you know, before you even got that project, which obviously seems like it was a game changer in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, that changed my life. Changed yeah. your life. Did you regard yourself prior to that as a comedy leaning guy? Or was that just, is that just the way that, that that has sort of cemented itself as a result of 
the things that have followed from Freaks and Geeks? Or were you always? Did you always feel your strength was not your not to the not to the um, exclusion of drama, but that that you had a natural inclination for comedy? I had, I have an interesting answer to that question. I think at that point I um, I was really doing it because it was something that I loved. And so I wasn't that strategic in my thinking. Mm-hmm. I think that as you become more acclimated to the business, you find out all these things. Like, uh, oh, if I've done well in comedy, I can do more comedies yes. and all that. At the time, I just really, um, all I thought about was that I love acting and I liked challenges. And it's been interesting because when How I Met Your Mother ended last year and I sort of entered into a blank canvas phase, I was really reminded of that time mm-hmm. when you just did what was interesting to you and it really was an exercise for me in um taking a minute and thinking about okay what is it that i actually like when i go home at night what do i put yeah, on right. on netflix you know or on on itunes whatever um it was important for me to return to that mentality because it's very easy to get on this uh to get too strategic in your thinking and it's in this business it's I don't know if punish is the right word, but you, in a sense, are punished for being good at something because then people, it's very hard for them to see you or they or to see you doing other things, right? So, I mean, were there many opportunities even prior to the end of the tour to branch off and do drama if you wanted to? Well, again, I was in a very interesting situation and in that the first movie I did that was kind of um, the start of all this was yes. Knocked Up, yes. which was, that was year one of the TV show. And... I might have the timing of one year off, but it was either year one or year two. And then Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which was my kind of um, breakout within the group, was the next year. So that was either year two or year three. So while all this was happening, I was also doing the TV show for eight months out of the year, which is an amazing gift. Mm -hmm. But um, there really wasn't much time for thinking. Right. Um, I was self-perpetuating. And so um, I was writing the script that I would shoot over hiatus during the year, kind of doing the TV show and then starting the movie the day after we would wrap and doing that during hiatus and going back to the show. So I don't think I really had much time for like out of the box thinking. Well, it may look, you know, I know when people pull up on IMDb, they pull up somebody's resume and they, it looks like it's just uh, steady and smooth. You've always, it's always been, uh, since you started, it's just been hunky dory. However, I, I remember that when Freaks and Geeks was canceled, yeah. Which many people have still not gotten over. Yeah. Uh, there was this period there for you where it was a very uh, kind of up in the air time, wasn't it? And it was out of that, if I have it correct, that that your writing career was sort of born. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a show by design that was a group of odd young actors you know and so i guess you sort of assume um again because you have no experience that okay on to the next i'm sure the whole town is looking for really weird kids (laughs) 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 which turns out not to be the case and so uh yeah there were three or four years of of literally no acting work um you know maybe bit things here or there or judd would have a project um but it was then when, and it was Judd who sort of educated me on the Albert Brooks approach, which is you're an unconventional leading man, you know, quote unquote. Um, the only way you'll make it is if you write your own material. And so I started writing. But even then, the first script I wrote was this script called Nightmares, which I've now turned into these yes. kids' books. That's sort of what comes out of me. And I was actually thinking about forgetting Sarah Marshall last night. Because I watched Frank last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I loved so much. It is like a dead bullseye for what uh, I dig, you know? (laughs) And I was looking back at Sarah Marshall, and it's it's almost like a a sneak attack in that comedy world because it has all the makings of a romantic comedy, but it also has like a lavish puppet musical. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my odd taste always seems to kind of find its way into what I write. For people to follow this chronologically that started during the the freaks and geeks dry stretch post freaks and geeks uh geeks dry stretch so during that dry stretch i wrote nightmares i wrote a couple other scripts that never got made 
and then I got the TV show, thank goodness. And this is How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, How yeah. I Met Your Mother, yeah. yes. Um, and that was when I was 25 years old. Okay. Um, and during the first, I think it was during the first hiatus of How I Met Your Mother, I rented a house in Hawaii and wrote um, wrote Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Wow. Yeah. Um, again, I just, I don't think I realized how hard it is. I just thought, oh, I'll just go do this. Because what was your prior experience with writing? Um, uh, just writing these ideas that I would think of on my couch, and I sort of became... I was just really inspired by watching Judd. Yeah, yeah. Really. You know, this idea that you can actually um, achieve this kind of alchemy where you think of an idea on your couch, and then you sit in a movie theater, and it comes out. Right. That, to me, was... That was magic. Right. And I was really inspired when I was young by these stories of like, like a Roald Dahl book or um, um, Labyrinth or Goonies. This idea that, um, oh, don't forget there is magic. Mm -hmm. And this seemed like that to me. Like, oh, think of an idea. And if you write it well enough, you get to make it. That just seemed amazing to me. And part of this allure of sort of of almost otherworldly like escapism, that seems to have come out of out of your childhood right where there mm-hmm. was it from again i i can only go on what i've read or listened to or from previous interviews but it seems like first of all you've always been a very tall guy right yeah. for most of your uh, six four since i was 12 six four since you were 12 and had different sorts of tastes and things for <laughs> yeah. all along right yeah so was it did you what was you how would you characterize as you look back now what, were, what was your what were your uh early years like was it a happy time was it uh or or is this now a way to go back and kind of live live out the things that were weird when you were a kid whether it's the muppets or yeah well i think i think it was a very independent time my parents uh my mother is christian my father is jewish and so they sent me to episcopalian school during the day and hebrew school at night (laughs) So I would walk from one to the other. Right. And it was a lovely idea, like, right. we'll give you equal education, let you choose. But the reality is that that makes you the Jewish kid at Christian school and the Christian kid at Jewish school. I have a very uh, distinct memory of my bar mitzvah approaching, and I invited everyone from my uh, my Christian day school. And the principal took me aside and he said, um, listen, everybody is so excited about your party. But I don't know if they know exactly what a bar mitzvah is. So we had a great idea. Maybe you could get up at communion and explain to the kids what a bar mitzvah is. <laughs> so then, uh, like Monday, I'm in front of the whole school standing up there, six foot four, like 110 pounds. But on Saturday, <laughs> I become a man. <laughs> and how did that go? Over? It's like a direct cut to me being punched in the face. <laughs> So it was always basically this sense of being an outsider wherever you were. Is that fair to say? Well, so then my parents enrolled me in a place called the Santa Monica Playhouse, an acting class here in um, L.A. And it wasn't to make me – it wasn't to to become an actor. It was because I was a very shy, awkward kid. And they wanted to, like, help me make friends, really. Come out of your show. Yeah, and I I got to this place, and it was very clearly a bunch of other kids whose parents had the exact same (laughs) issue. And I remember um, this Muppets quote where somebody said, a bunch of weirdos make a family. And I remember sitting in that acting class thinking, oh, my gosh, here it is. A bunch of weirdos, and we all are making a family. Everybody's being nice to each other. And I, I remember feeling exactly the same way during Freaks and Geeks. So it was re- so so when you now are out on your own, having emerged from these various different families, whether it's the acting class or the Freaks and Geeks company, yeah. or, now um, I guess you're always once you're in the Apato uh, company, you're kind of always uh, involved. It seems like in some way, people he you they they reunite every once in a while for different things, and that was the case with with you as well. But what were the the first things where you felt like, all right, I'm now off on my own I, and, yeah. and uh, having to make it in the in the movie world on my own. Mm. And I guess coming out of that dry stretch of, uh, of sure. post freezing years. Well, I remember when I wrote The End on Nightmares, I felt incredibly proud and I felt like, okay, I can do this. Because mm-hmm. um, that's the hard part. Uh, you know, it's... The idea isn't 
necessarily the hard part. Right. There's a lot of people with a great idea for a movie or half-finished screenplays. <laughs> this whole town. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, it's – an idea is a lot. Yeah. But writing the end, that's that's really the hard part because it's just a lot of nights of, no, I can't meet you for dinner. Um, a lot of, like, making it through these periods where you hate your idea. Right. Uh, um, and that little voice that's saying, this this is dumb, you'll never make it, you know. Um, I find writing to kind of be a war of attrition. Like, mm-hmm. you really, you're kind of, um, you're holding on to f- the faith that this idea is worth it. Yeah. Um, so I was proud of that. And then I was, I was really... I was really excited about forgetting Sarah Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, all right, I'm putting a lavish Dracula puppet musical at the end of this thing. <laughs> this is like really uniquely me. And yeah. I was really excited about that. And the fact that people seemed to respond to it meant, meant a lot to me. Uh, that's terrific. Again, Thanks. From that, and, and I think we should note, though, because it's easy to just say, oh, they were all comedies until end of end of the tour. But yeah. the reality is that there's some dark stuff in in a lot of these comedies, starting with Sarah Marshall. Right, this guy's yeah. in a dark place, and so drama is yeah. always it's not it's not a clean break between drama and comedy in any of these, is there? No. Well, I I mean, my personal opinion is the whole test is your capacity for honesty on screen. How honest are you willing to be? And in comedy, you're you're doing that through humor, but. I've never responded to the stuff that's just like slipping on a banana peel. Right. I think you get like a visceral laugh, but right. it's not um, and not the opposite of visceral, actually. You get sort of like the, a body laugh, yeah. this like instinctive reaction. Um, but I, I've always felt like um, if you're really willing to put yourself out there, that's what people respond to. And when I look at movies I've done where that wasn't the goal, I don't like them right. very much, you right. know. And you have always, I mean, in in numerous of the the prior movies, there's been you've played. You're not the uh, necessarily the alpha male. You're the vulnerable guy who's getting past something, right? So yeah. with uh, certainly, I mean, doesn't get more vulnerable than having to kind of go buck naked in a movie with with Sarah Marshall, right? Yeah, I'll tell you what's interesting about that though is yes, the first time. It is risky. Mm. But like we were saying before about the um, sort of the nature of the machine of mm-hmm. all this, mm-hmm. then there is this option, which is very easy. And like I-, I did, you know, where you are encouraged to keep doing more of the same and it becomes less and less risky each time. Mm-hmm. And and I think audiences become less interested and I became less interested. Mm. That's sort of where I found myself at the before I decided to do the end of the mm-hmm. tour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With uh, just to just to touch upon a couple more things before we really hone in on end of the tour, I think that you've done a couple of things with Paul Rudd. Yeah, and I love you, man. Is yeah. one of the really special ones. Thanks. And I think this idea also that there aren't a lot of movies where where the audience is necessarily going to be interested in watching two guys dealing with their stuff together on on in a throughout a, a course of a film. Obviously, end of the tour is now is in a very different way that same dynamic. Uh, but what is it that um, you know? If you had to break down the the Jason Segel screen persona, and everybody mm. sort of has one, it doesn't mean that you can't do things that are different from it or whatever. But what is it that that audiences you feel kind of uh, tap in? They they obviously connect with you. Why do you think that is? Well. I think if I look at um, the comedies, there's probably been, and I, I don't generally think of myself this mm-hmm. way, but um, to answer the question, like I think there's probably been in those comedies two distinct versions. There's like the really vulnerable pushover who needs to grow up, and then there's also the cocky version, mm-hmm. which I was in like uh, Knocked Up, right. and um, and even in I Love You Man is like a little right. cockier. I think that. Bo- I, I think if I have something that people responded to, it's that um, 
they feel like they know me and maybe I offer like a surrogate experience. It's what I like in the authors that I respond to where I don't feel like um, I'm reading someone at the end of the journey telling me about their experience. I am, I respond to the people who are right in the middle Checked of it, into it yeah. and saying, hey, do you want to come join me? Yeah. I'm, I'm confused too. Yeah, because some people, you see them on the movie screen. It's very hard to, I would imagine, for like uh, a woman to relate to Megan Fox or a guy. There are some movie stars that are just completely seems unattainable larger than life whatever is it that they can connect with you in a different way yeah well i think uh i think there's lots of different acting Mm -hmm. styles and they all are valid but i think that offering a surrogate experience is a really interesting one it's what's interesting to me yeah well the last one that i want to touch upon before end of the tour is one that unfortunately i don't know how many people saw it but i thought it was Prior to end of the tour, the best thing oh, I ever saw you do. Jeff who lives at home. Jeff who lives at home. Yeah, I love it so much. That was the only time I previously interviewed you. It was one of quick Q and A, and I just thought I I wish we could have talked about it for hours because that oh, one is thanks. so uh, just out, outside any box that ever existed. What what is the what in the way in terms of the way it's made in terms yeah. of what it's about. I think if that movie suffered from anything in terms of people seeing it, it's that you see Ed Helms and I on a cover of a movie and you assume it's going to be a broad comedy of some sort which it very much isn't there's mm-hmm. jokes in it but it's right. um it's a real exploration that i mean that's the duplass brothers yeah. um who i love so much um and it's a real exploration of um kind of like some very sensitive feelings between two brothers two very very different brothers mm-hmm. um and it's whimsical and there's like a little bit of magic mm-hmm. in it uh it's a really special movie all you know I can say from like a detached point sure, of view. Sure, no. Um, but I loved, I loved acting in that. Uh, my goal in that movie was just to do nothing, like um, Peter Sellers and being there, yeah. which is one of my favorite performances. Mm-hmm. Where you just it, it, the control of somebody doing nothing. Um, that was what I tried to do in that. I don't know how well I achieved it, oh, but that was great. the that was the goal. Do you did you find that? After that movie, let's say, which was unlike, I think it's fair to say, anything prior to that yeah. for you, did you start to see a – is that where the change began in terms of somebody saying, wait a minute, maybe Jason Siegel can do this that we didn't think he could do before? Or maybe, you know, or was that just – or was that really – did that begin with, with End of the Tour? Well, I wasn't really aware of any outside perception changes, like mm-hmm. industry perception, yeah. I guess is what you're asking. Yeah. I, I really didn't feel that so much. But what was happening for me during that period was I was starting to realize that I was no longer feeling connected to my previous style of work. And... I was starting to like want to do different things because it was reflective of where I was and where I was going and finding out life is really complicated and tricky and you reach um thir- so you're trying so hard to make it in your 20s. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And then you reach 30 and you start to feel like oh wow, I um theoretically am going to do this for another 50 years. Mm-hmm. I better um why did I want to do this in the first place? And it's because I wanted to express something. I felt like I had something unique about me. And, uh, oh, geez, in, in trying to make it so hard, I've kind of lost sight of holding on to what made me different. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you then did get the end of the tour, yeah, um, I believe it was the the usual channels and agent says we've got this do you want to check it out right yeah and when you when you did read it um and it's essentially you know again for for people who haven't seen it yet go see it but also the the it it could have been a very different kind of movie it's two essentially two guys talking for the whole movie if they weren't as interesting as these guys are that doesn't go over well but it, it it's what was your reaction? You sit down, you read the script. What's your first takeaway? My first takeaway was they'll never let me do this. Um, it's I, I can't imagine wanting to do something more, and there's no way they'll ever let me do this. And it was cruel that my agent sent this to me. <laughs> <laughs> so why, first of all, why uh, did you think they would never let you do it? And also, why did your agent send it to you? Um, well, my agent, who is... Um, 
Sharon Jackson, who's wonderful and brilliant, really knows me mm-hmm. and read the script and knew that this is really where I was at that point in my life. I was at a really, really interesting crossroads of having had a lot of different versions of success and failure mm-hmm. and but having come out of it I did you know really really well and wasn't really feeling satisfied mm-hmm. um, was sort of feeling like I was repeating myself uh, I was feeling like um, I'm not saying what's in my gut anymore mm-hmm. and and she believed in me now I it's important to mention James Ponsold at this moment because it's a it's another Judd moment. Thing about a movie like this, which it's like three point five million dollar movie, mm-hmm. um, the director has to want you. You know, there's not like a strategic element to casting me. I don't help. I don't help in a movie like this. Honestly, I, I think, at least at the time, mm-hmm. and it was James Ponsold f- for some reason. When the idea came to him, he thought, yeah, that guy could do it. And that means more to me than, than wow. anything. Judd, Judd has done a similar thing for me when I was younger. Did James ever, has he ever told you what it was that sold him on the idea that you could do this? Yeah. He said that every time he saw me act, dating all the way back to Freaks and Geeks, he saw something really, really sad behind my eyes. And I remember thinking, like, I was like, oh, man. I didn't know people could see that. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. You, and and you feel there's some legitimacy to what he said yeah sure i think that's that's probably true of anybody who chooses to endeavor in the arts yeah i think yeah it's a it's a unusual it takes a certain kind of person right that would get into it it's such a like a unique personality there's so many things underlying so you've got like people's individual personalities on top of everything but one of the things that's underneath is that you think that you have something to say that is worthy of people like paying money for and turning off the lights and giving you rapt <laughs> attention. Like anyone right. who tells you that's not underneath it, well, right. I don't know why they're doing right. it. Right. Yeah. That's that's partly why I've always been amused. I mean, I I get how it would get tiresome to do some of the. I absolutely get being a public figure must get very tiresome after a while. However, if the alternative was nobody caring, right, and and I I feel like nobody gets into it without that being the last thing they mm. wanted but we can come back to that i mean so the gist though with your personal connection with with the material was that as you're saying you you like uh david foster wallace had basically done what you set out you were you were getting to do exactly what you had hoped to do and yet you were feeling not satisfied yeah so the movie takes place over the last four days of the infinite jest book tour where and, and um, this isn't to summarize the movie, but it's mm-hmm. to put in mm-hmm. perspective the similarities. Um, you know, this is a guy who wrote a thousand plus page book. We were talking about writing before. That is years of sitting there with the hope that what you're going to write makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's that's crazy. That is real faith. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out. You have no idea how it's going to do. And it's the biggest book of a generation people say the book awards have been decided and he's at the end of this book tour and all he can think about is as soon as this book tour tour is over i'm alone in a room again with a piece of paper and theoretically i'm supposed to do this again right and so i guess that um the corollary experience which is different my life is different Mm -hmm. but i danced down hollywood boulevard with the muppets (laughs) In that is the most cartoonish example of what should be the happiest moment in your life. Right, right, right. I'm singing a song that says everything is great, everything is grand. I got the Muppets dancing around me. It was my birthday. Oh, my God. Like, this is the perfect day on paper. Right. And I remember going home that night thinking, like, you know, that lasted two weeks. Mm -hmm. If that, the glow of it all. And then you're thinking, what next? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought exploring that idea was really interesting to yeah. me. Also, just to bring up a few other parallels, and obviously when you're an actor, it's not, it's not, you're not setting out to play yourself or anything sure. like that, but I think it's interesting that there are a few other yeah. parallels. And correct me if any of these things are wrong, but you're the, you were the same age as Wallace was when he met Lipsky. Yeah, that's right. Um, you two are obviously a famous person who is a best-selling Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe different right. genre of material, uh, that's but right. yeah. 
you get interviewed all the time by journalists who are total strangers to you. Yeah, sure. And you have to you're expected to sort of open up about very personal things. Yeah, that's right. And along, I'm I'm sorry to play into that, but yeah. also you've you've spoken about the fact that you've yeah. also battled some personal demons like Wallace that you know uh, maybe maybe are nobody else's business, but in a way you've because of interviews or whatever sure. you've shared that. Yeah. No, there were there were a lot of um, there were a lot of things when I read that script where I felt like for as much as I knew that nobody else in the world necessarily besides Ponsold would think Jason is the right person to play this part. Um, honestly, and I can say it now mm-hmm. that the movie's out, I read it and I thought uh, I am really particularly well suited to play this part in a way that there's no reason for people to understand. Right. You know, one of the things I'm really aware of mm-hmm. is that you are the center of your own universe. Mm-hmm. So you have all these feelings about yourself um, and you can, you can, there's the temptation to be like offended when people don't understand the things about you that you understand so clearly about yourself. Right. I realized that luckily a while ago that it's nobody else's job to know like the nuances of my life. So I know that when I was cast, I heard like, oh, people can't believe it and they're up in arms and all this. Um, but I felt like, no, I know what I'm I know what I'm doing. Right. I was terrified. Right. I, I had all the appropriate levels of terrible fear and self-doubt. Right. But I, I felt deep down like it was something I could do. Veering off just for a second, what is it that you think uh, – do you have any theory about why it is that people who have the capacity to be very funny, as yeah. you certainly do, um, so many people like that also have very dark aspects of their personality, things that sometimes uh, very often lead to uh, drugs, alcohol, or in some cases, you know, just serious depression. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, the tragic examples we all know, the Roger – uh, the uh, Robin Williams and people like that. Sure, but I mean, you, fortunately, it sounds like you have found a way to uh, get past the things that you've that you've faced in in your life in that sense, or largely. Yeah, well, no, I think that the truth is you deal with this stuff every day, mm-hmm. and it's learning to be okay with your feelings. Right. It, I don't think that there is a moment when all of a sudden everything's peachy keen. Um, I don't know what kind of language I'm allowed to use. I call Anything. Oh, yeah. Well, I call BS when I see yeah. somebody who's in a state of bliss, perfect yeah. state of bliss. You know, good for them. Maybe, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. But in my in my mind, like, I mean, for me, right. um, and, and David Foster Wallace talks about this in a beautiful right. speech called This is Water. Yes. Um, which, if you're listening to this podcast, you're already on your computer, theoretically. You can go YouTube it um, when we're done. But anyway, it's a... Uh, he he sort of has worked through some of the questions he was asking earlier in his life and has some proposed answers. And it's this idea of maybe getting out of this idea that you're the center of the universe mm-hmm. and um, but being part of what's going on around you and realizing, like, oh, it's not it's not all about me. That's the simplest way to put it. But do you think there's something that that is there actually a correlation why some people who are so funny and able to bring such happiness to other people mm. often are the same people who who not that everyone doesn't have some aspect of this but but have very have have had significant dealings with those sorts of issues as well. Well, there's a documentary called Misery Loves Comedy that Kevin Pollack did that really explores this issue with a lot of great comedians talking about the very thing. Um, I think if you really looked at the comedians you respond to and what makes you laugh, it's them um, being very open about their pain in yeah. a funny way on screen. Yeah. I actually don't think it's such a confusing yeah. um, connection. You know, yeah. like they're right there on screen, like being miserable. Right in front. Of you. Yeah. You yeah. just have to look a little closer. Yeah. Um, so the way that you prepare for this, because you did, as you say, you were, you went into it with a certain degree of anxiety, like let's yeah. figure out how to do this right, rise to the occasion. Yeah. What, let, <laughs> let's go through this one by one. Had you previously, done what many people claim they've done but maybe haven't which is read infinite no i hadn't read infinite chest yet (laughs) um well i'll tell you how it started if you want to do the timeline of preparation sure the first thing that i thought to myself and this is going to sound like a joke but it is totally not a joke right i thought to myself okay you've never done anything like this before what would an actor that you admire do 
to prepare for this part. It sounds reasonable. I thought yeah, so, right? Yeah. And so I, um, I really like. So I went and I got a dialect coach, and like I did all of. I went and found a place where I could live and like immerse myself mm-hmm. into the material. I ha- I had no. There's another documentary called Beauty Is Embarrassing. Okay, I don't know about that. It, it's really it's really great. It's um, it's about an artist named Wayne White, okay. and. I really related to it because a lot of these things that I was about to embark on previously had embarrassed me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, they felt pretentious or whatever. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I felt like, okay, Siegel, um, <laughs> you know, you go around in your own mind thinking, if I only was doing this kind of material, and then you get the opportunity to do it, yeah. and you're confronted with the possibility that you're going to be wrong. Right. And so I thought, you really should give it, leave it all on the court. Right. You know? Uh, so I rented a house in a little town where I could just read and I could like practice um, like the voice mm-hmm. and things like that. And I could start wearing a bandana mm-hmm. so that when I got to set, it didn't feel like I was putting on a superhero costume. Right, right. Um, all of those kind of things. And then I started a book club in my local town to read uh, to read Infinite Jest. This is the little town where you were staying for yeah. this period. Yeah, yeah. I went to the local bookshop and asked a bunch of questions. And they offered to do a book club with me, and wow. it was like the best thing. It was the best part of the experience. And how did that work? That's fantastic. We would read a hundred pages a week on our own, and then get together on Sundays and talk about it. What was really interesting is because it really informed the performance. The book is so honest mm-hmm. um, in a very funny way, but it resulted in four grown men in their thirties sitting around on a Sunday night. I'm a stranger to them. Mm-hmm. They don't know why I'm doing it either. I, at this point, didn't I, I didn't tell them. Okay. Yeah, um, talking about feelings about like loneliness mm-hmm. and where we place our value, and seeing that the book had that effect on people was really an important part of the process. And not only, th- but this is years and years after it's been out in the universe. Yeah. Right? Well, what's interesting is the um, the book takes place in like a dystopian future, mm-hmm. and we've we've reached it. Yeah. Right. The where basically looking for energy well let me let you yeah well well the book takes place in a um in a world where everything is sponsored right. including um like the names of the years so it'll be like the year of the whopper <laughs> right you know the year of kmart kind of thing right. which seems pretty close to where we are yeah. now entertainment has become all um prevalent mm-hmm. and is sort of a centralized system which right. is you know getting close to these like itunes boxes the apple tv and all that Totally. We're getting all of our stuff right through one um, channel. But what it really is about is this idea of there's pleasure, there's achievement, and there's entertainment. And we're sort of told culturally that these things are going to make us feel good. That a life well lived is working really hard all day, going home, cracking a beer, and watching a marathon of reality TV. There's a lot of messaging that that will make you happy. Totally. And there's a whole generation of people who are finding, wait a minute, uh, I feel like something is missing. Right. And it's uh, it's interesting. You see like a lot of misplaced anger as a result. People yeah. really trying to figure out why they feel dissatisfied. Yeah. And and where does that where's that going to lead us? Cuz it's not turning around and and reversing anytime soon. It doesn't seem like, you know, there's too much too much of a financial incentive for too many people to keep perpetuate that idea yeah well i'm no expert on anything but my 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 feeling my hope is that there'll be some sort of um swing back maybe one generation below the current generation where they think it's so dumb that their parents post their meals on instagram (laughs) you know what i mean like just a generation that's rolling their eyes being like just eat your burrito mom jeez (laughs) That's my uh, hope. Well, I'm with you. <laughs> uh, I know that, well, and first of all, speaking of similar product to burrito, Hot Pockets came into yeah. came into this. Yeah. Well, I had to gain a, a bunch of weight. We had yes. photos to match. <laughs> um, and, and so I, I had to, uh, we were like three weeks out of shooting, and we did a hair and makeup test, and I just, I, I looked I looked too thin. Mm-hmm. And so for, for this particular sure. four-day period, and so I, uh, I put myself on this terrible hot pocket diet of <laughs> two hot pockets every three hours. Oh my god! Yeah. What was your What was your flavor? You go with the ham and cheese course, every time. Of course. Yeah. Well, pepperoni and cheese is so good too. We could have a tangent on this, <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah, it, that was not. You know, it's interesting. It actually really helped me 
Um, because it wasn't just that. It's ice cream and all of this right. stuff because you're trying to gain weight really fast. And there's this, like, lethargy that comes with that where, like, all of your vital energy is gone. And every night feels like Thanksgiving night, you know, where you're just done right. and you just want to take a nap. Right. And when I heard the David Foster Wallace recordings, because Lipsky made the recordings yes. of the interview available to me. That, yeah. yeah, so I had the full four days to listen to. And there is a, a very similar sense in David Foster Wallace towards the end of this mm-hmm. long marathon interview where he just sounds done. Mm-hmm. And you've got this guy who, you know, David Lipsky is a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. All of this, the real David Lipsky, yes. I know him, he's participated. Um, but you, you have the sense that during the time, it's a guy who just keeps asking what's it like to be famous, what's right. it like to be famous. Right. Tell the truth. It really feels great, right? You really feel great. You really yeah. feel great. Right. Just keeps asking him. In essence, just calling him a liar. And David Foster Wallace is trying to communicate this thing like, if you would just listen, mm-hmm. I have the, I'll tell you the real story. Yeah. And, um, and it's a shame because it feels, in the movie, James Ponsolt does an amazing job of capturing it. The movie almost feels like an unrequited platonic love story. Yeah. That there is the opportunity for a guy who has really he could really use a friend at the moment here's another guy who maybe he can talk to about stuff and the other guy just ultimately calls him a liar can't can't get past and just wants to know about this rumor about heroin do you know i don't know if this is a crazy comparison but i i thought about it and then i read that there were a few other people that uh had observed it as well but uh the movie amadeus yeah do you see the the parallels i do yeah very much so um because there's something about your relationship to your idol. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very complicated relationship for somebody who is also hungry and ambitious. Um, because you almost need to deify your idol because it explains why you haven't done it yet. Right. If he is something other than me, then I can let myself off the hook. Right. But when you find out, oh no, he's just a guy who works harder. Or is smarter. Mm-hmm. That's tough on the ego of right. the ambitious guy. Yeah. yeah, the other. I think there's also elements of Frost Nixon in it. Oh um, yeah, because yeah. there's this. It's a four day interview, and there's three days of look. I'm your friend, and then day four, I'm coming after you yeah. on Watergate. You right. know, right? Amazing. Well, um, I guess the I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this other. Frost to your Nixon. Is yeah. that the right? Do I have this right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, who, just the best. Okay, so I have to ask because, I mean, most people, if they know him, they know him from the social network. Sure. Or, um, you know, he's done some some really great indies, Adventureland and some others. Yeah. Had you ever worked with this guy, and how did you develop it so that when, you know, it seems like it's pretty much the two of you, the whole movie. Sometimes some other people come in and out, but it's you too. No, it's the two of us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a great other, there's yeah. a great cast, supporting cast, but it, every day was Jesse and I together. Yeah. On and off set, right? Yeah. We were staying at like a residence in motel kind of thing. And we would drive to work together in the mornings. It was freezing cold, by the way. We were in something called the polar tundra or something like that. <laughs> I, I think that's the right word. It was like the <laughs> coldest winter on record. Uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I think it was called the Polar Tundra. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and so there's a forced intimacy when it's that cold because, like, windows are rolled up. Yeah. It's not like a spread out kind right. of feeling, you know? And so we would drive to work in the morning, and we would go over our lines for the day because it's so dialogue-heavy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Donald Margulies wrote the script. Yes. He's just a genius. And a lot of it is taken from Lipsky's book, which are taken from the interview. So some of what we're saying is just verbatim out of two of the smartest guys, you know, of their time. Wow. Um, but so we would go over the lines, and then we would act, and the feeling was with slash against each other yeah. all day, because there is a um, – I've, I've thought of it a little like a quote-unquote friendly tennis match yeah. where you need the other person in order to maintain a volley because mm-hmm. you want to get some exercise. Yeah, yeah. But the whole time you're thinking – when do I level the big blow, you know? <laughs> right. And you could feel that in both of us. Totally. This idea of wanting to win the scene. Yeah. And you both have a lot going on that's not expressed verbally. Well, that's where Jesse shines so much in the movie. The movie really is about small changes in Jesse. Mm-hmm. 
And there are scenes where, and this is why James Ponsel is so brilliant. There are scenes where I'm like delivering a big monologue in essence. uh, And James cut it together just on Jesse's eyes where you hear me talking, but you watch this little shift in Jesse's eyes. Um, He's Jesse is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You mentioned just uh, Margulies, who, as I understand it, was actually Ponsolt's professor at one time. Yeah, how about that? That's crazy. And so he sends his former student a script, having the student now has made his name in Spectacular Now and some of these other recent movies. Um, And I guess the the question about that that I had is how, you know, in in a lot of the comedies, my understanding is you've been encouraged and it's been welcome to have improvisation. Yeah. Was that at all present during this film. Um, there wasn't. There are moments that happened, yeah. Yeah. but certainly without the intent of, like, improvisation. Right. You know, like, sometimes something right. would happen right. that was different than what was on the page, but um, that wasn't very often dialogue-related. Gotcha. Maybe, like, the tiniest tweaks, but sure. um, I think something would have felt arrogant about paraphrasing David Foster Wallace and also I'm just not as smart as David Foster Wallace so it would have been Cruise, like yeah, yeah it wouldn't right. it wouldn't have been congruous with everything else sure now you get to Sundance I don't know if you had, had you seen yeah. the movie before this oh man movie? so Sundance is so scary for me because um I had seen a cut without any music Danny Elfman did our, our oh, yeah. score oh, yeah. so I hadn't seen that um and I had watched it alone in a room and so there's no you have zero gauge as to whether or not the movie is good it's you alone watching yourself act (laughs) it's really I I wouldn't recommend that to anybody was it it frightening (laughs) yeah well you just yeah you you have no criteria to gauge if you've done well Um, I had a hunch I had done well but I could be vain Mm -hmm. like I could be secretly vain in a way that I'm not aware of Um, so we go to Sundance and there's this other question where like you said before, this is a lot of two guys talking. And if people aren't interested, nothing is going to happen to make you interested like halfway through the movie. Right. And so the first screening for me was this big question of are people going to care? And then this other question, which is probably like some mixture of some mixture of being too hard on myself, but also self-aware. There is also a chance that um, no matter how good I did, the audience watches the movie and just says, no, I don't accept that. I don't accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. So how satisfying was it? When did you first realize that was not the response? You could kind of feel when you were watching... Like when you get a little rea- uh, reaction from the audience, like a gasp right. during a scene of dialogue, you can tell they're kind of with it. Yes. You know, and there are a few moments like that where in the movie where um, that's sort of a good indicator people care. Uh, and then there was a really nice reaction when the movie ended, when the credits went up, and um, and we did a Q and A, and then you know I don't follow the. Twitter kind of stuff, but I, you know, you're with like publicists and agents when you leave, and uh, and there was a nice reaction on that social media. So that element. must have felt uh, felt good. Yeah. <laughs> so the last last couple things here, just just really, I think brief. Just curious, what the first thing that comes to your mind? Yeah. If David Foster Wallace uh, was around today and yeah. saw this movie and saw this four day period in his life, apart from being pleased that something was finally done with the interview, right? Yeah. What what uh, what do you think his reaction would be? You know, I, I really have no idea. I learned a while ago that when I try to, like, guess what somebody else might be thinking, they're, they always seem to be thinking about me. <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped so You gave that. up on that. Okay. Yeah. Now, having, again, you've done zillions of interviews yeah. yourself prior to this yeah. latest movie, but having now looked at the... Uh, journalist subject interaction yeah. up very closely. Would you ever uh, allow a journalist to spend four, whatever, four or five days with you in the way that David Foster? No, was? no, no, not a chance. Because <laughs> there's only so long that you can keep up. For for as natural as this is, yeah. I'm also thinking about your questions sure. and 
responding in a way sure. that I think is suitable to my agenda. Um, <laughs> As we all do. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you really are always doing that to yeah. some extent. Yeah. Like, think about a date. Sure. That's what's happening. Of course. Um, I think over any extended period of time, you drop the guard. And um, I don't trust today's internet world that somebody necessarily has your best interests in mind. Does that sense come from having personally been burned in the past? No, it comes from... Um, seeing like uh i guess they call it clickbait oh yeah 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 you know like look at this major fail and then you look at this major fail and it's fine right right like the guy spilled a little bit of ketchup on his shirt give him a break (laughs) and is this is this is this at the root of uh you know everything is okay in the in the muppets and all these other some of the other i think your your children's books all of it yeah is that where that comes from man I really have come to the point in my life, and mm-hmm. it's what the kids' books are really trying to communicate mm-hmm. to kids. If you are doing the best you can and you're being nice to the people around you, then um, I think that you deserve to give yourself a break. You can go to sleep easy at the end of the night. I couldn't agree more. So uh, finally, um, where a lot of people who have either discovered you through this movie because they didn't necessarily – see the, the yeah. maybe you know whatever their reasons for not having seen earlier stuff or they've discovered you anew through this movie yeah uh i'm certain they're going to be wondering what is next is it sort of the uh is it what what some people have done where they've done a drama and then it's been entirely back to comedies or is it the jonah hill uh kind of trajectory where now the guy's a two-time oscar nominee yeah. uh for dramatic roles do you see yourself like it have, has it been rewarding enough that you would want to continue to do dramatic work yeah well i'm kind of back in the mentality that i had when i was a kid where all that i want to do are things that are really interesting to me things that i would want to watch at night so that to me that can be any genre mm-hmm. that can be horror yeah i loved it follows yeah you know, um, there's this beautiful little vampire movie called Only Lovers Left Alive. Oh, yeah, sure. Tell yeah. Us yeah. 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 I mean, there's oh, Frank. Yeah. You know, I don't know what you call any of these right. movies, except that they, um, I, man, they, they, I dig them. So the only thing that's, that's really changed is that other people may be more open to the idea of you. Yeah, them. I think so. I think that's, I think that's the hope, but, um. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, I've learned that you make a decision and you kind of plow forward with it. Theoretically, everything that I've accomplished is impossible <laughs> by the odds. You know what I mean? Totally. So I kind of am back to the idea of make a decision and, and then make that happen. Well, congratulations. It was really such a, a special movie and performance. Thanks. And- I really appreciate you coming in and talking about it. Oh, what a blast, man. (laughs) This is probably the best interview of my life. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Really appreciate it. Thanks, man.